Welcome. It's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richard. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day, none other. Yasmin Aliyah Khan, host of Modern Context, Rebel HQ contributor, All Star. Always fascinating to have her analysis. Top story of the day. District Attorney Fonnie Willis, well, the court records have been unsealed. And guess what? No mention of her in these divorce records, no mention of her at all. Hundreds of pages, not one mention of the DA. Put up the picture full mass. Let me remind you why everyone paid attention to the distraction rather than Mr. Roman, who's actually on trial for trying to overthrow democracy. His defense attorney filed a motion on the last day he was allowed to file a motion before the trial. It's called a pretrial motion. He files the pretrial motion, indicates by way of rumor and conjecture that the district attorney is involved in an inappropriate relationship. And because of this, his client should have all charges dropped, which is insane. Because even if there's a violation of an office policy between two consenting adults, it is not a statutory violation against the rights of the defendant, nor is it a constitutional violation against the rights of the defendant. But still, the motion wanted the divorce proceeding, the documents to be unsealed, insinuating that in those documents, we would somehow find evidence of this rumor. Fulton County, Georgia, the recently unsealed records pertaining to the divorce of Fulton County Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade do not provide evidence of an improper clandestine relationship with his superior Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis. Wade was appointed by Willis to lead the investigation into Georgia election interference case. He's basically the manager, all right? He's the guy to make sure all of the I's are dotted, uh, T's are crossed. It did result in the indictment of former President Donald Trump and 18 others. Let's make the main thing the main thing again, put him up. Him, that's the main thing. Co-defendant Michael Roman. A former White House aide filed a motion alleging a romantic involvement between Willis and Wade, along with saying, oh, and and they benefited from this relationship and from the prosecution. Roman also requested the unsealing of Nathan and Jocelyn Wade's divorce records. All right. There's more. Cobb County, this is where it happened. Cobb County is next to Fulton County. Cobb County Superior Court Judge Henry Thompson ordered the unsealing of these records on Monday. However, the extensive documents spanning hundreds of pages make no mention of Willis or any other potential romantic interest. Nathan and Jocelyn Wade were married on June 21st, 1997. They separated August 15th, 
2021. The timeline is important. With Nathan Wade filing for divorce, November 2nd, 2021. Now, before I go and give you the rest of the details here, you do know the headlines will not be as sensational, will not be as robust as the initial headline, which was based on rumor. Now we have a fact. The fact provides a contrast to the insinuation of the motion. The motion filed by the Trump co-defendant said you will find evidence of a romantic relationship in this filing. Unseal it. A judge decides to unseal it. There is no evidence that a relationship was taking place at that time. None. Is the other thing. Bonnie Willis, the DA, through a spokesperson, said very clearly, we will answer these questions in court. Well, what happened? After that, a motion was filed as a rebuttal from the DA's office, basically saying, I have no unique knowledge of any information that would be germane to a divorce proceeding with Mr. Wade. Who told the truth? She did. Who insinuated a lie? Mr. Roman. These are the facts so far. There's more. So in her counterclaim, and this is the counterclaim of Jocelyn Wade, a counterclaim is normative in divorce proceedings. In her counterclaim submitted November 30th, now watch the timeline. This is 28 days after Mr. Wade filed for divorce. 28 days later, she files a counterclaim. She submitted a comprehensive list of interrogatories. Interrogatories, and let me explain this, interrogatories are basic but probative questions that you are to answer, all right? So you can say, oh, you know, um, describe your romantic entanglements. Um, was there excessive alcohol use in the relationship? These are interrogatories are presented in the counterclaim, all right? Um, these questions cover financial matters related to Nathan Wade, along with personal aspects, including sexual partners, casual meetings with other women than his wife during the marriage and separation, social media, dating website activities, and inquiries about um, both the drug and alcohol usage. Nathan Wade responded to the interrogatories in the counterclaim on December 2021, all right? But according to Jocelyn's attorney, the response was deemed woefully inadequate as it included only a few incorporation documents, one bank statement, and minimal answers to personal interrogatories. She wasn't satisfied with the answers, but here's one answer we have, had nothing to do with DA Fonnie Willis. Can we all agree that the answers, the questions, the back and forth, the claim, the counterclaim, and then the counter to the counterclaim had absolutely nothing to do with DA Fonnie Willis? There's more. Over the subsequent two years, Jocelyn Wade's attorney repeatedly complained about Nathan Wade's willful refusal, it is called, to provide the requested documents or answer interrogatories. In May 2023, the court ordered 
Nathan Wade to submit all outstanding documents, including tax records and pay stubs, which he partially complied with in June 2023. Subsequently, he faced contempt charges August 2023 and was directed to provide additional credit card statements and law firm records. So let's go to September. Now, if he doesn't provide, let me say this, if he doesn't provide the information required by the court, you are then technically in contempt. It's up to the judge to enforce the contempt action or not. Looks like this judge enforced the contempt action. That is separate. That is separate from any issue with DA Fonnie Willis. I can't see the district attorney being involved in his interrogatories or whatever legal strategy he and his attorney may have as it relates to the counterclaim. Has nothing to do with DA Fonnie Willis. Once again, September 2023, Jocelyn Wade filed another motion. It is a motion to reopen discovery. Look at the timeline. Now we are squarely into the territory of Trump prosecution, okay? September 2023, Jocelyn Wade filed a motion to reopen discovery. Reopen discovery alleging that Nathan Wade, while appointed as a special prosecutor in the Trump case, was leading a lavish lifestyle, spending substantial amounts of money, leaving her with minimal financial support. If he did that, he should not have. If he did it and got caught, he should pay. He should pay anyway, period. Whatever the just do is, you submit your documentation as provided. Be transparent so that things like this do not come up to bite your ass. Once again, still no funny Willis district attorney prosecuting Trump Mentioned. There's more. December uh, 2023, Nathan Wade reportedly produced some outstanding discovery responses. Discovery, by the way, um, is um, something that each attorney must abide by, okay? Revealing credit card statements indicating non work related trips with Willis. Can I say this again? In December 2023, Nathan Wade produced outstanding discovery responses revealing credit card statements indicating non-work related trips with Willis. This is two years after legal separation. Two years after legal separation, he provided the documentation to comply with the motion. There's more. Credit card statements indicating non-work related trips with Willis. As a result, Jocelyn Wade decided to now serve D.A. Willis. Everyone knows she's in the middle of this prosecution. And obviously, based on the court records previous, there was no issue with Fonnie Willis, except for after their marriage had ended. So Jocelyn Wade served Willis with a notice of deposition, meaning putting the DA under oath on January 8th. Wade was not, Wade has not, excuse me, admitted to a romantic relationship with Wade and defended him in a speech, excuse me, the DA is not, and defended him in a speech with the historic Bethel AME Church. Uh, she was there on January 14th. We covered that at Indisputable. She sought 
talking about the DA, she sought a protective order against the deposition, basically saying this is this is now harassing litigation because I have no unique knowledge of anything that would have made their marriage fall apart. I did not even have a connection to this guy in this way until after their marriage was done. I have no unique knowledge here, Judge. That is a credible defense to a motion that's that's this probative. All right. Okay. So uh, a judge actually granted that motion, agreed and said, yeah, it looks like you probably don't have unique information, at least temporarily. All right. So that motion was granted. The impact of the alleged relationship, the alleged relationship between Willis and Wade on the case against former Trump and his cronies, where four have accepted plea deals, that remains uncertain. Calls for investigations into the matter have been made, including Fulton County Commissioner Bob Ellis, Republican, by the way. The Republican on the commission, Bob Ellis, who sent a letter to Willis last week, and Senator Greg Dalazel, who introduced legislation to establish the Senate Special Committee on Investigations to look into the allegations of misconduct. An evidentiary hearing in the divorce case is scheduled for January 31st in Cobb County Superior Court. And Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee has set a hearing to consider Roman's motion to dismiss his case next month on February 15th. I got your timeline. I have the, the actual motion and the response to the motion, which is unsealing of the divorce records. We now see that DA Fonnie Willis in her motion when she said, I have no unique knowledge of their divorce. She was telling the truth, the insinuation that she somehow was involved in a nefarious way that ripped up this, this happy marriage, allegedly, was completely false. The narrative and the rumors were utilized to do exactly what has now happened. Because instead of the main thing being the main thing, we're talking about a divorce, an entangled relationship perhaps, and somebody spending money on a credit card in 2023, two years after, there's no more marriage connection. This is about one thing, eliminating the opportunity to get to former President Donald Trump. Because the one thing he does not want is a black woman prosecuting him. He already knows. A black woman prosecuting him, she is not subjected to his threats. She is not afraid of his political might. She did not back down from the initial special purpose grand jury investigation, nor the normative grand jury indictment. She has been doing this for a few years now and has not stopped under any pressure. So what do they do now? They created a narrative. Now, is Mr. Wade potentially out of line here with some of the the dynamics not produced by way of order to the court? Of course, could have avoided this by producing the information earlier, but you probably still don't avoid someone manipulating the information to make it seem like it is something else. He's the one who provided the receipts in the first place, okay? He's a single man now, you can do that. Is there possibly a county issue? Perhaps, that's, a, that's an inter-office dynamic. It's nothing legally chargeable as the Georgia Bureau of Investigations 
has already concluded. All right. Hell of a thing. Okay, here we go. My dear sister, I had to put it all on the record so everybody can see it full blast. What say you? You know, from the beginning, we all knew exactly what this was. This was not just a long shot attempt for Trump and his team to evade accountability for the crimes that they've been accused of committing. It was always an attempt to call the legitimacy of the whole case and the whole trial and the whole DA's office into question. Trump has learned that it doesn't matter whether or not he gets accused of committing crimes. All that matters is whether or not he has public support behind him. He already knows that half of his supporters don't actually care whether or not he's a criminal, but they also know that the other half can be pretty easily convinced that Trump is not only innocent, but he's a victim. These evil Democrats are just trying to get to him, but he's out there doing the work, fighting the fight, so that his supporters don't have to. He's their martyr and they love him for it. All he's doing with any of this is wasting time and he's wasting resources and he is securing votes. Yep, that's right. Uh, DA Fonnie Willis, I highly encourage you to file a bar complaint against this uh, attorney for making this filing in bad faith. Um, This is something that is um, fileable based on what we now know factually. All right, bring your updates as they come. A Georgia elected official asked the sheriff, hey, I need you to investigate this. And then that elected official ends up being arrested for multiple felonies herself. Well, that's exactly what happened. Put up the picture full mass. Hell of a story here. This is in North Georgia. Commerce City Councilwoman Roshonda Merritt has seen her new career as a recently elected official get off to a rocky start after an attempt to go to the local sheriff's office for help led to her being arrested for felony charges. Charges of the high crime of marijuana distribution. This comes almost a month after she was sworn into office. So Jackson County Sheriff Janice Magum said the charges came after the 43-year-old lawmaker asked the Jackson County Sheriff's Office to intervene against someone who had allegedly posted inappropriate photographs of her on social media. The sheriff telling the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, she reached out for help and filed a report about inappropriate photos. She was the victim. So let me give you the law. Georgia law criminalizes the distribution of sexually explicit images without the consent of the person depicted. Sharing revenge porn is considered a felony when a person posts a sexually explicit image on a website. In such cases, the offender may face a prison sentence of one to five years and or a fine up to $100,000. If the act involves posting the explicit content on any other electronic platform, it is treated as an aggravated misdemeanor carrying a potential prison sentence up to 12 months and a $5,000 fine. After starting the investigation, the JCSO discovered evidence. Now that's kind of vague, but this is how they characterize. Discovered evidence pointing to a different crime where the public school teacher turned politician was placed under the microscope. 
so to speak. Merritt allegedly sent a photo of four THC infused gummies. Oh my gosh. We must suspend this investigation immediately and charge the elected official with massive distribution of controlled substances. There's more. All right, so they found a picture, said, okay, she sent a picture with a text that said, let her know if anyone wanted to purchase said gummies, according to an arrest warrant and the AJC report. So at that point, the sheriff says, I stopped my investigation. Wait, wait a minute. What do you mean you stopped your investigation? She said, at that point, I stopped my investigation and requested the GBI. The sheriff continued, quote, I felt like it would be best for them to become involved because of her position on the Commerce City Council and because she was a Jackson County School employee. The JCSO handed over discovery pictures and text messages of her phone of THC gummies that they allege point to the councilwoman selling the cannabinoid narcotics. I, I never heard it referred that way. They call it cannabinoid narcotics in the police report. You know they're reaching, right? Cannabinoid narcotics. Okay, uh, that's cute. Out of her Jackson County home. The GBI, uh, they came down full force, arrested the elected official on January 19th. After reviewing evidence, they charged her with a criminal attempt, a criminal attempt to commit the sale of marijuana and use of a telecommunication facility to facilitate a felony. Merritt, who represents Ward 5, turned herself in and was booked into the Jackson County Jail. Now, put up the attorney. The attorney has a, a great, great question here. So the attorney, uh, so Merritt is represented by attorney Jason Black, uh, who questions how, how did law enforcement go from working on behalf of investigating her, Black told the AJC, quote, how was a case able to be made against my client before they were able to solve a revenge porn situation where my client is the victim and people wonder why nobody goes to the police for help, end quote. The lawyer did not deny the gummies were his clients, but said Merritt has sent the text messages before she was ever an employee as a teacher or elected to the city council. They charged her with conspiracy, except nobody knows what those pictures were. Are they THC or CBD or gummies out of a Captain Crunch box at the store? Um, if it were me, sir, it was, came from the Captain Crunch box. Quote, what they did was they made a whole lot of assumptions and claimed she was attempting to distribute THC and added the use of a telephone for basically asking, do you want one of these? Black added, still, his client is facing swift backlash and distancing from those who believe the charges are enough for them to step away. Jackson County School Systems released a statement saying, quote, it is aware of the ongoing investigation regarding a former employee of the system. We are cooperating with law enforcement agencies. While the district referred to her as a former employee, as of Tuesday, January 23rd, she was listed in the East Jackson High School Staff Directory um, as a career technical and agricultural teacher. Uh, so let's put up the assistant city manager. His name is Matthew, Matthew Haley, City of Commerce. 
So he released a statement regarding the arrest and the municipality's position on merit status in the city council. Quote, because this matter involves an open and ongoing investigation, the city of Commerce has no comment at this time. So Commerce, the city clerk, Sandra Haggard, was not as vague, telling the AJC, quote, this is a personal matter done on personal time. It occurred prior to her election. It has nothing to do with the city whatsoever. Our city charter says there is nothing for us to do unless there is a felony conviction in the court of law. And everybody is innocent until proven guilty. That's what I'm talking about. She probably broke all kind of rules by making a statement outside of the normative process of the city manager. But good for you, you told the truth. Everything you said was factual. Um, once again, black female leadership just got there, probably raised some eyebrows. Maybe she says something that was not part of the you know, normative chain of command, how you should structure a statement, or she offended somebody. All of a sudden, she's a prolific cannaboid narcotics dealer. Wow. All right, this is the thoughts here. Yeah, you know, for as long as weed is still illegal in parts of the country and at the federal level, they're going to just continue using it as a reason to lock people up or just to discredit good people. They're really gonna miss all the conveniences of this war on drugs, which has only ever been a tool of government control from its very conception decades ago up until this very day, it seems. There is absolutely a difference and a distinction that needs to be made between that which is lawful and that which is just or good. There are plenty of laws on the books today, and there have been plenty of laws throughout this country's history that are fundamentally and demonstrably unjust, whether that's on a moral level or just in terms of equity and the way that they're enforced. And here we have a woman who was victimized in a very real and scary way, but somehow having having gummies or Captain Crunch cereal is somehow considered to be more offensive and more dangerous and a higher priority than the revenge porn that she was originally seeking help with. And that revenge porn, again, just a reminder, is considered a felony. So if the point of law enforcement is just to serve and protect, then they're just not doing it. And they wonder why people have so much public distrust of law enforcement. And it's just like you said with the previous story, this is another instance of you know, the main thing is being made to no longer be the main thing. And coincidentally, black women in positions of authority have been the victims in both of the stories that we've discussed so far. Yep, that's right. Um, once again, both are felonies, right? Statutory. The sheriff said, I stopped my investigation in order to call the GBI on this elected official. It's insane. Federal judge, Trump appointee, decides to block the EPA from doing exactly what they're supposed to do, protecting people and the environment. Let's put it up for a mask. Federal judge James D. Kane, Trump appointee, blocked the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Justice from enforcing Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, desperate impact requirements against Louisiana agencies. The judge ruled against residents of a stretch of parishes along the Mississippi River known as Cancer Alley, okay? An epicenter of petrochemical manufacturing in the US. And the people living there disproportionately have higher rates of cancer, facts, okay? Last year, Louisiana Governor Jeff Laundrie, a Republican, then the state attorney general sued the EPA to block a civil rights investigation into potential desperate impact 
Blacks in the largely Black area of the state, arguing the probe exceeded statutory authority. The agency closed three civil rights complaints weeks later, but in his Tuesday ruling, Kane said existing regulations also constitute federal overreach. In the preliminary injunction, he wrote that the EPA and DOJ are barred from, quote, imposing or enforcing any disparate impact based requirements against the state of Louisiana or any state agency under Title VI. Well, damn, that means the federal government has no authority. That's what that would mean, which is insane. The federal government has zero authority, none. There's more. Kane wrote, quote, pollution does not discriminate, end quote. It's the, it's the people that, I don't think you understand how this works, sir. Um, and that if a decision maker has to consider race to decide on enforcement, it has indeed participated in racism. Kane's ruling comes the same day as a report from the National Minority Quality Forum, which found that 56% of the communities of color are cited with three kilometers of a site producing carcinogenic waste. The town of Reserve in St. John, the Baptist Parish has cancer risk about 50 times the national average. Let's put them up, Earth Justice. Uh, they filed the original uh, Title VI complaint on behalf of St. John, the Baptist Parish residents in 2022. You're looking at Sam Sankar. So Sam is the senior vice president of programs, blasted the ruling in a statement saying, and I quote, the court's decision to issue this injunction is bad enough. But what's worse is that instead of fixing the discriminatory permitting programs that have created sacrifice zones, like Cancer Alley, Louisiana is fighting tooth and nail to keep them in place. The public health crisis in St. John the Baptist Parish shows us why we need Title VI. See, EPA needs to be able to use our civil rights laws to stop states from running permitting programs that perpetuate environmental injustice. There you go, all right? Now, there has to be a response from the current administration on this that is vigorous, that actually shows they're willing to be passionate and fight tooth and nail, just like Louisiana. But I doubt you will see that, all right? Thoughts? Yeah, so I live in Houston, which is also along the Gulf Coast. We're not that far from Louisiana and the Mississippi Delta. Oil and gas is huge around here. The people who live in these areas regularly drive by oil plants and refineries, and a lot of us earn our living working in the oil and gas industry. It's just a way of life around here. So you would think that they're extra vigilant around here about oil spills and leaks and toxic hazardous byproducts in general, but they are not. It's always just a matter of time until there's another plant explosion or another black plume of carcinogens traveling across the city. We've seen that so many times. And at least in Houston, I can say that very little gets done about it in terms of preventing these incidents from happening in the future, let alone any kind of reparations or assistance for the people who are the most directly affected. And in Houston, the people who live along the Houston Ship Channel, which is where most of the refineries are, they tend to be black and brown people, and their life expectancies are decades less 
than those people who live in the more affluent and the more white communities just 30 minutes to the west. So protecting those communities is not a priority. And we know that it's not because if it was, they would do things about it. They know about the dangers of these refineries. They know about all these carcinogens that are being pumped into the land and into the air and into the water supply. And they're not doing anything about it because profits are always more important than people. Especially when the people are people of color. Yeah. All right. We got more on the other side is indisputable, stick and stay. Somebody's having not a good day. All right. So um, I don't know if this individual, uh, obviously, uh, may be having a break at the moment, um, but I want to highlight something. Whatever's happening in his mind, the workers seem to be really, really courteous because even after he destroyed property and yelling and Saying, give me real food, which by the way, you're probably not getting real food in a drive-through window, not, not on average. Okay. Something to put in your belly, but not real food. Um, they continue to say, hey, it's coming. Just give me a minute. We're on the way. All right. I thought that was quite, quite courteous. Thank you for being nice to somebody having a bad day. All right. Uh thoughts. Uh, Yeah, you know, whenever I see things like this, my initial response is always to laugh. But I think that's because I always just kind of watch the world like I'm watching a movie. But it's not a movie. People are really out here in these streets acting like this. And in real life, things can go from being funny to being scary very quickly. And I will never understand why people think it's okay to act this way, whether that's in public or in private, but especially in public. This is where we are as a society. As he said, props to those workers for the way that they handle this very, very scary situation. Governor Yonkin, he has this uh, CRT hotline, critical race theory, call us. Okay. Uh, so a black digital disruptor trolled it. Here it is. Virginia Governor Glenn Yonkin created a tip line to report critical race theory being taught in schools. I had a problem with that. So (laughs) I wanted there to be an easy, fun, community-oriented way to get this tip line taken down as soon as possible. I coded a tool that allowed people to send song lyrics and lines from the B-movie to the tip line. Essentially, it takes the name of a real school, 
a real city in Virginia and spits out a very ridiculous report. For example, I have reason to believe Thomas Jefferson High School is teaching race. I overheard a teacher saying, shoddy had an apple bottom jean. It's silly, it's goofy, it's just as unserious as the creation of a teacher reporting tip line itself, which is exactly what draws people to this kind of action. Democracy is just more fun and inviting when you take it into your own hands. After I finished the website, I sent it to my friends at Gen Z for Change. We all posted videos. Thousands of emails were sent from every state in the country and virtually every continent. And we had emails bouncing within 48 hours. Months later, the tip line was quietly officially shut down. Didn't even last a year. Because of the skills of a few, the platforms of many, and the will of hundreds of thousands of meddling kids, unified in our intolerance of injustice, we were far more powerful than a couple people in official positions of power. The stability of democracy internationally requires that we use whatever skills and resources we have to combat hate, bring movements to life, and stand united in solidarity with one another on every corner of the globe. Justice can't wait. So take what's in front of you, get really creative, and cause a record. Call me Morpheus, for I have found the one. Put her up full mass. One of the most powerful statements she made is that you are stronger, you're more powerful than a couple of elected officials or officials in authority. You're looking at Sophia Juan Gelly, who serves as the director of digital strategy at Gen Z for Change. This is a youth led nonprofit. It leverages the power of social media to drive what you just saw, progressive change. Sophia is a 22-year-old developer, creator, activist from the greater Los Angeles area, and now attends Columbia University. At 17, she created her first award-winning app, Redon, to support survivors of sexual violence thereby sparking her passion for using technology to serve marginalized communities. As the digital strategist, she creates tools to streamline digital civic engagement, tackling issues from the climate crisis to inclusive education. Most recently, she was a subject on the Disney Plus docuseries Growing Up, wherein she details our imperative ability to break free of internalized stereotypes and imposter syndrome. She has spent her academic career teaching more than 100 of her peers how to code, speaking to students in virtual and in-person classrooms about the importance of using their skills to create change and sharing her ideas with larger audiences at conferences such as Aspen Ideas Festival and SXSW. Her work has been lauded in publications such as Teen Vogue, CNN, and even Bloomberg, embedded in computer science curriculum, taught in classrooms nationwide, and has earned her accolades, such as the California Endowment Voices for Change Award and being named a CES Young Innovator to Watch. Um, I applaud not only the amazing mental cognitive gifting 
of this brilliant leader, but the willingness to leverage it to create positive change in the world. Thank you. All right. Thoughts. Yeah. And this is how you do change. This is how you respond to, I can't say the word that I want to say. This is how you respond to government overreach and political incompetence and just irrational fear coming from our political leaders. You have to be smarter than the people perpetuating these fears. And this young woman has proven that it's not very difficult to outsmart them. And what I love about what happened here is how geographical sprawl wasn't an obstacle here. There have been so many things that have galvanized groups of people in opposition against government officials or laws or initiatives over the year, but they tend to fizzle out over time. And I think part of the reason for that is because it can be difficult to physically assemble large and long lasting demonstrations of people when we're all so spread out in the suburbs and in rural areas across this giant country. But technology is the new gathering space. It's the new town square. We're all the town criers on the internet. And I love that this young woman was able to, I love what she was able to achieve using the internet. And for Gen Z, they're the digital natives. You know, They're the ones who grew up with an iPad or an iPhone in their hand. I'm really glad to see that all that is, is worth something. Yeah, amazing. And she's doing the work and making effective change and she avails herself to service all of her accolades well-deserved. All right, we got more on the other side. It's indisputable, stick and stay. Video of the police kneeling on a student's neck has been released. We have some of the information for you. Put it up full mass here, right? That's, that's a student underneath the knee of that cop. Per the AP, Clark County School District officials in Las Vegas have released police reports and body cam footage under court order showing a campus officer kneeling on a black student last year. The incident sparked public outrage after initial bystander video circulated on social media. The viral 50, 55 second cell phone video began with several officers detaining two students as another student walked by, recording them. Elsberg yelled to him, you won't next, dude. The student backed away. The student lowered his phone before the cop twisted him to the ground next to the patrol vehicle, as you see here. The student faced down next to the curb. The officer kneeled on his back. At one point, the student could be heard asking his friends to call his mother. In his incident report, the Clark County School District Police Lieutenant Jason Elfberg said the teen, whose name is redacted, refused to move away from the officers, handcuffing another student while investigating a report that a gun had been brandished the previous day in threat and a threat had been made to shoot up a Las Vegas school. No weapon was found, by the way. Uh, I want you to take the side by side comparison here. Okay. You see, we have deemed the knee on the back of a person to be a no-no. It led to the death of a human being on camera and honestly injury and death to a lot of human beings across the span of policing in America. Elfberg, who is white, pinning the team beneath his knee drew public protest and comparisons to the 2020 murder of Mr. George Floyd. The community has called for the cops firing. 
and an ACLU of Nevada lawsuit that forced school officials to release all information. It was them that helped spark the actual transparency. Separately, police body camera video showing the team being handcuffed by another officer sitting on the curb with his hand behind his back. And Fberg later acknowledging that the two landed hard on the sidewalk. He encouraged the team to be checked for injuries, but the team declined. In his report, the cop wrote that the, inc- the incident escalated when he ordered the student to start walking, at which point he said no, end quote. Fberg said in his report, he grabbed the teen, pushed him against the fence, and he attempted again to remove himself from my grasp. So I then spun him around and took him down to the ground. All right, so you're admitting, okay, let's put it up full mass. So this is the attorney of uh, officer, actually Lieutenant Elfberg, Adam Levine. Adam told the AP ahead of the release that his client, a 14 year old police veteran, a 14 year, excuse me, he's acting like a 14 year old, but he's a 14 year police veteran was cleared of wrongdoing by the district and remains on the school police force. The attorney also represents the school district's police union. Now, here's what you do. Uh, School police officer, school board, school board representatives, political, meaning accountable to the people, right? Political position, elected. Somebody's in charge, district and community-wide. Get to working. School officials late Thursday um, complied with a judge's order to release the police body camera footage of the February 9th, 2023 incident near the Durango High School campus. The six video clips the district distributed with faces and parts of some other scenes blurred total more than two hours. The district argued that most records of the encounter were confidential because of the age of the people who were detained and denied media requests for them. The ACLU on Friday called the district's fight not to release the records shameful and expensive for the organization and taxpayers. It characterized officers' accounts that the teenagers were stopped during a gun investigation and attempt to spend the events and avoid accountability for attacking school children, end quote. Let's put up executive director, ACLU executive director, Athar Hezabula told reporters Friday, quote, this fight is far from over. And that the organization has spent $50,000 on the attorneys to obtain the records on behalf of the two male students whose names have not and will not be made public as they were 14 years of age at the time. During the news conference, the executive director, ACLU attorney Christopher Peterson, and NAACP Las Vegas president Quentin Savoir said it appeared Lieutenant Elfberg was annoyed that police activity was being recorded. So the ACLU, through the executive director, called for Clark County DA Steve Wolfson to investigate and charge officers with wrongdoing. So the DA responded that police should conduct the investigations and collect evidence, not his office, even though his office has investigators and has the authority to investigate. While he has prosecuted officers throughout the county for various crimes, he said no fouling seeking prosecution has come across his desk. He said further, I'm not afraid to file a charge in an inappropriate circumstance if and when there is sufficient evidence. 
sir, so you mean to tell me that in order for a cop to get away with a crime against a child, in order for a cop to get away with a crime against a child, all it all they need to do is simply not investigate and send you the information. That's it. It can be on camera. It could be noted by eyewitnesses. It could be in a sworn affidavit from a victim. But if the cops don't do the investigation themselves, your office won't lift a finger to do what the community who voted for you empowered you to do. You have concurrent jurisdiction here, sir. You were elected because the people believed in circumstances like this, your leadership would actually prevail. All right, thoughts here. Yeah, how is this still happening? It's incomprehensible. And I say that not just because we literally saw global protests over George Floyd, but how do these cops think that this is any way to treat anyone, let alone a child? How did we get to this point at to where we're thinking that this is an okay way to carry out justice? The fact of the matter is that we simply don't see cops in other so-called civilized countries treating their citizens this way. Cops are just people who wanted to do a job, so they got a job. They're not better than most people. And we can talk about the caliber of people who are allowed to become cops in this country. We can talk about the types of people who even want to be a cop in America today and why that job is appealing to them. But the problem, this problem is so much bigger than even any of that. The problem is the fact that Derek Chauvin is still celebrated in this country. The problem is that the cops are still so protected that they're they're insulated from legal liability, even though they're literally just people who are given deadly force and the freedom to exert it yep. as they see fit with little to no fear of meaningful repercussions. And this goes even beyond poverty and the systemic factors that have been proven to actually contribute to, to crime within societies. This is really just about police culture. Yep, there you go, police culture. Once again, eating policy alive. Beauty queen, Georgia beauty queen has been arrested, charged with killing um, a toddler, um, the toddler, was her boyfriend, according to the report. Put it up for a man. This is a hell of a story, very sad. 18-year-old Trinity Pogue, a Georgia beauty queen, is facing charges including aggravated battery, felony murder, and cruelty to children in the first degree following the death of her boyfriend's 18-month-old son. According to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Pogue is currently booked in the Sumter County Jail with no bond. Her charges come after campus police at Georgia Southwestern uh, this is a state university found the toddler, Jackson Drew or Romeo Engles, uh, per his birth certificate. There is some debate about the name, okay? Unresponsive inside a dorm January 14th, according to local news outlet WALB. They are located in Albany, Georgia. The outlet notes Pogue is a freshman at the school and that the child's um, single father, Javante Smith, who took his son to the hospital, that's the child's father, all right? Uh, the child was taken to the hospital in America's Georgia where he later passed away. Initial findings indicate the cause of death may have been blunt force trauma. The Sumner County coroner told WALB. The coroner's office did not immediately respond to HuffPost's request for an update on the toddler's official cause of death. The GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, began investigating the incident after being contacted by the Georgia Southwestern State University Police Department following the toddler's death. Pogue was arrested following an investigation 
that included multiple interviews and an examination of the evidence, said the GBI. In 2023, Poe earned the title of Ms. Donaldsonville, a small town south of Atlanta. An Instagram post on October 30th shows her in a pageant, sash and crown. The caption on the post reads, quote, having a title doesn't make you higher than anyone, more prettier or even more popular. In my case, it simply shows the younger generation what is all to achieve. Um, this is ongoing. Uh, th- there is a GoFundMe created to help Smith pay for his son's funeral. Um, and as of this morning, it exceeded the goal of $10,000. But if you would like to be a blessing to them uh, in memory of the young Jackson Williams, we, um, we encourage you to do so, all right? Um, once again, this is an ongoing and developing story, but she has been charged no bond. You would have to imagine that after investigation, examination, as well as looking at forensic evidence, they have concluded surely that she was the cause of the child's death. This is such a damn shame. All right, thoughts here. Yeah, what a sad story. You know, no one likes these stories. And the worst part about them is that even if justice is served the way it should be, uh, the damage is already done, the baby's already gone. These things happen, and it's hard to say why they happen. There can be a myriad of reasons as to why this happened to this child. But uh, it is good that we're talking about it here on the show today so that we can get maybe some support for the family. Yeah. All right. We got more on the other side. It's indisputable. Stick and stay. Another uh, mother dead uh, because of medical staff and mistakes. Put up the picture full mass. We've reported on this before. Statistical data is available that shows how medical doctors in this country are killing black women who are pregnant. All right. A newly released. Newly released information has provided more insight into the death of 30-year-old black mother, Christine Fields. Fields died November 13th, 2023, after undergoing an emergency C-section at Wood Hall Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. The mother of three went into medical crisis, which led staff to perform the procedure. Her fiance, Jose Perez, claimed she did not want the surgery as it was not part of her original birth plan. She had provided her plan to the attending medical professionals when she was admitted. However, the family alleges staff ignored her birth plan and the family's advocacy on her behalf. Fields also sought the assistance um, of her delivery uh, specialist who was unavailable at that time. Her baby's heart rate drops and there's fetal distress. Ira Newman The family's attorney previously explained to local news, quote, she's rushed in for a C-section and we are investigating and have learned from the medical examiner's office that there was pooling blood. The New York Times secured a two-page document of initial findings from New York State Department of Health Investigation. The notes were created on December 18th, just over a month after, after her passing and revealed that a mistake by the medical staff played a role in what happened, citing miscommunication. It claims the surgeons failed to notify other members 
about Phil's complications from the procedure, which notably breaches the safety and health regulations. It mentions a uterine arterial injury, which ultimately resulted in maternal death, according to the report. They admit it, it's in writing. Put it up. Perez called Phil's condition after the surgery. That is the man whose heart was completely shattered. Observing, he observed something was visibly wrong with his fiance in the hours following the son's birth. He brought it to the staff's attention, but alleged the staff did not notice her complications. Uh, before I go further, there's another story that I want you to check out when you get a moment. It's online. I think it's on YouTube as well. There's a judge, former TV judge named Judge Hatchett. Her son went through something very similar. He noticed the signs. He saw it happening. He kept telling medical staff and they kept telling him he was wrong. She was wrong, his wife, that they were going to be okay. She died. She's dead now. And he feels like he should have done more, but he trusted experts. The Times noted that the documentation does not include her name or a thorough description of the C-section. However, a doctor who did not want to be identified confirmed with the outlet that it refers to Phil's case. Their probe is still ongoing in the labor and delivery unit. In addition, the Times reported the two other anonymous sources who work at the facility claim that some staff members were urged to go to training or review the policies after fields, as they're calling it, incident. Per the document, the department informed the hospital's leadership that, quote, there is a need for immediate action for patients undergoing procedures to prevent serious adverse outcome. Fields family announced their plans to sue the hospital for $41 million, alleging careless and negligent treatment, WABC reported. When asked to issue a statement regarding her death, the NYC health and hospital system said they've improved their protocols and hired two new individuals for um, anesthesiology uh, departments across our, excuse me, across our health system. We're using innovative interventions that we believe will address the disparities and race-based health care gaps that historically and disproportionately affect the diverse population of patients we proudly serve. The statement said, they're saying, yep, we kill people based on race. So we have new policies not to kill people based on their race. That's, that's really what the statement says. You read between the lines. Put her up full mask. <sighs> they took this mother away from those children and that man who loves that woman. Phil's death is a grand reminder. Black mothers are more likely than any other racial group to die from pregnancy-related factors under the care of a medical doctor. The CDC estimates in 2021, the, materni the maternal mortality rate among black women was nearly 70 deaths for every 100,000 live births. That is damn near three times higher than the rate for white women, regardless of income or education. All right, here we are. Data right in front of us, live examples. But still, there's no racism in America. There's no bias. 
implicit racism. What is that? So sad for this family to have to experience this. Racism kills, ladies and gentlemen. Racism kills people. That's why it's so important. Um, Thoughts? Yeah, the maternal mortality rates in this country are absolutely dismal and unacceptable. And it's scary, especially being a woman of color. And I live in Texas and we have one of the most we have one of the worst uh, maternal mortality rates in the country, even with a world-renowned medical center here in Houston. You know, we portray ourselves as the best country in the world, but we can't even protect our women, our mothers specifically. And yes, accidents can and do happen. Yes, there are a million things that can go wrong during a pregnancy or during a birth, but there is a very troubling trend in this country of stories like this one popping up more and more often. There are also stories that I'm seeing of patients, specifically female patients, who are receiving medical procedures that they did not consent to receiving. And I'm not a doctor and I would never presume to know the stress or the weight of that job. But I do know that cases like this one, uh, the maternal mortality rate in this country, these are not sustainable. People, perhaps it's a resource issue, perhaps it's a workforce issue, maybe it's bureaucracy, or maybe it is just racism, whether that's overt or covert. Whatever it is, I would love to see more attention and more resources directed towards protecting our mothers, especially our mothers of color. And I realize that that's much easier said than done, but sometimes things are difficult, but it doesn't mean that they're not important. Very well said. Um, this is always a pleasure to have you on the program. Tell people how they can follow you, check out your great work. Yeah, you can find me on the Rebel HQ YouTube channel. I do videos four times a week there. And you can also follow my podcast. It's called Modern Context and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you as always. All right, the bullpen is next. Stick and stay. All right, let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. All right, yep, he's back in the bullpen today. We have Mr. David Grasso, independent journalist. Also, he holds a master of public policy from Harvard Kennedy School. Congratulations on all that. All right. Not as prestigious as it used to be, but I'm still a big fan <laughs> of my degree. That's good stuff, man. You should, brother. You earned it. All right, so we, we actually want to make the main thing in politics be the main thing in politics, which is actually policy. You know, personality has become number one in kind of the agenda for now. Uh, but the reality is policy still is the way you are supposed to play politics. I want to talk specifically about black folk, brown folk policy. How has Republican policy impacted? Black Americans, Latino Americans, how has progressive policies impacted the same? Um, I have my opinion, you got yours. So what say you? So let's start with what attracts Latinos and African American communities to the conservative movement. I think you have to talk a lot about entrepreneurship. We think in our communities, uh, we're more likely to be entrepreneurs. We're more likely to own small businesses. And I think people of all partisan persuasions understand that there's a huge problem in the way that we regulate massive businesses and small businesses the same way. So let's talk about that first. A lot of people who are entrepreneurs who understand that it's very difficult to run a small business are often attracted to conservative ideas. Yeah, but what's the policy? Because uh, it, when you look at the actual numbers, 
Uh, the fastest growing demographic of new business owners is actually African American females. Yes. Um, and also in education as well, right? Education obtainment. So when you look at the numbers, what policy has has a Republican presented and approved that made this entrepreneurship dynamic more attainable? And what policies have Democrats presented and approved that made it more attainable for them? Because the Republicans are literally stripping those programs through SBA and others or attempting to and eliminating those programs completely in state government that would actually attribute monetary opportunity allocation to good ideas from those in the communities you just named. So how are Republicans winning that battle when politically they're not based on the agreements of voters they're not and also based on the allocation of how money should be specialized in these arenas they're not? So specifically, let's give liberals a point, right? Student loan forgiveness for people who serve in public service is enormously, enormously valuable. Now, when we're talking about you know entrepreneurship at the state level, this is where it gets dicey because there's 50 states. And it really doesn't have a lot to do with what party is running that specific state. It has a lot to do with policies on professional licenses. And in a lot of states, they're way over-regulated. And this includes both red and blue states, to be fair. And for someone who has a hair salon, or a flower shop or a restaurant, these policies are all over the place. It really depends on independent leadership in the legislatures and in the governor's office. And I can give examples of red states going the wrong way and the right way and blue states the same way. Let me give you some specifics because when people question why are black people supporting Democrats? And a lot of times you will hear this from the right and there was all you're on the Democratic plantation and things like that. But when you look at the numbers, and I'm not saying Democrats are great. I put my foot up there for Democrats all the time. The point is, what policy presents the better opportunity for you to get from point A to B? Most businesses in America actually do not start with the loan. They start with what we call disposable income. That's how most businesses in America start. So. How do you increase disposable income if we already know factually that most businesses start based on the disposable income that you have? Which policy brings you closer to disposable income? So I'm going to read a couple of stats. Um, And this is 20 years of Democratic leadership versus 20 years of Republican leadership in the presidential sense. Black families' incomes grew under Democratic leadership on an average of $900 annually but only grew $142 under Republican same 20 year comparative cycle. Black unemployment fell by a rate net 7.9 percentage points across 26 years of Democratic leadership, but it actually went up 13.7 points during 28 years of Republican presidencies. Across the years of Democratic leadership, black poverty has actually declined by 23.6 percentage points, but it grew. It grew three points under Republican leadership in the White House and specifically about Trump because this gets lost in the narrative. Under Trump, here are the facts. Black white wage gap increased under Donald Trump since Trump took office. The actual gap between black Americans and white Americans increased to 28%. The number was at its lowest under President Barack Obama at about 19%. Black white Wealth gap is one. Home ownership is another. Why? Because for most Americans, the number one investment, the largest investment you will make is the investment of a home. 
black home ownership actually decreased under Donald Trump. Excuse me, it decreased under Donald Trump's presidency. And the gap between black white ownership, that gap increased by 32%. So you had less black homeowners. You had less programs that allow for black home ownership or first time buyers. You also had a household median income of black families go down, even though they had more technical employment, meaning contact with contract jobs, et cetera, they still made less money. And you had lower, the lowest high school graduation rate under President Trump in modern history for black Americans. And the list goes on and on. So from having disposable income, the progressive value seemed to actually get you there. And by the way, white people make more money under Democrats than they make under Republicans as well. So it's not just black folk. So how are they able to make a policy argument that our policies give you more opportunity at entrepreneurship when the policies that we have before us over the last 30 years plus of Republican versus Democratic policies, this is not conjecture or future projection. This is what has happened. Those policies have aggregated to show very clearly, these numbers aren't even similar, dear brother, that democratic or progressive policies will give you a better outcome, even if that outcome is not synonymous to what you should have, is better than what Republicans give you. So here's the problem. The past three Republican administrations, right, when they ended, what did they have in common? When Trump presidencies was over, when Bush the first, if we go back to 1992, and George Bush in 2008, All three of those ended in a crisis, in a recession. So you're taking a statistical snapshot during an era that things were not good. And then when you talk about policy decisions, they're often path dependent. In fact, your audience, one of their biggest critiques of the Biden administration will be that it greatly resembles the Trump administration. So it's really hard to take a statistical snapshot of policies in time. If you look at policy analysis and policy impact, really, you have to look 10 years down the line to really find true impact. You're always going to find convenient statistics to support whether a Republican or Democratic administration is better for the average consumer or average ethnic group. But that's what I'm asking. But it's never going to give you a real world reality, especially when inconveniently for Republicans, the past three Republican presidencies have ended in an economic crisis. Well, let me ask you this, give me one, take the entire gamut Give me a Republican policy that has given black and brown people a significant win that is championed by Republicans today. Okay, uh, so lack of zoning. Um, a lot of housing prices are driven by zoning. You know, the nasty uh, but, but zoning is not a partisan. Exists. When that we say zoning, conservative market driven policy. No, no, let's come back. Let's Houston come back. And not San Francisco. That is a conservative policy um, mm. when you're talking about- uh, You said zoning is a conservative policy. You got to unpack that because I'm not sure if you're talking about zoning for commercial use. No, no, lack, zoning of, for, lack of zoning is a conservative policy. So zoning as we lack know of, it was- No, sir, I would not agree that lack of zoning oh, is yeah. a conservative policy because oh, zoning is typically- time. I mean, if you but, look at but the poster so child zoning, for lack of zoning, it's Texas or even where you are, Atlanta is typically has very you know, light touch zoning. When you go into more blue states like San yeah. Francisco- you know, or New York zoning is is very heavy. And ultimately, when you're talking about disposable income, as you mentioned, housing is the number one expense. So if you bring down hmm. housing expenses, you'll probably see more entrepreneurs start business. All right. So let me uh, let me provide some pushback to that point. Uh, so zoning, at least for the states that are around me, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, even Florida, 
Um, your local city council, uh, and some are called townships that are a little bit smaller. Sure. Uh, these are nonpartisan elections. None of these individuals have partisan um, elections. They're all general election. Um, and even in Atlanta, uh, none of the individuals are partisan. So you don't vote for a Democratic mayor or Democratic council person. Um, they are all open tickets. So you can't make the, the significant argument of partisanship being involved in the zoning ritual. But I will say this about cause and effect. Because there's one dynamic that I think is a good contrast. And my actual um, background before getting into broadcasting um, was in higher education reform. Yes. I have a, one of my doctoral degrees from Clark Atlanta University in federal higher education reform. And in that, I analyzed and researched all of the presentations of Democrats federally, all of the presentations of Republicans federally over the last 20 years. And I looked at the American College Promise Act. And, and that act would have revolutionized how we did education, but that didn't happen. But here's the reality. S uh, roughly 70% of black graduates will default on their loan yes. within a few years after graduating. Now, this is not simply because they don't pay. It's because of the ecosystem of having to find a job. Interest rates. Interest rates, et cetera. Homes. There yeah. you go. And the only party that has presented a resolution are Democrats, not to the degree that I would like them to, but they have. And the only party that's pushing back and saying, no, 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 this is illegal, are Republicans. When the reality is this is a real thing impacting everyday people, and they don't realize that the cause and effect is this. What's the number one deterrent to first-time home buyers? Debt. Student loan debt is the number one deterrent. So can I take a buyers. third way on this one, Doc? Sure. So yes. I think both parties are wrong about this. Okay. So I think it's packaged wrong. Student right. loan forgiveness is saying you're giving out freebies. Maybe they should be negotiating about interest rate forgiveness. And the yeah. way we package things would probably get buy-in for constituencies who really don't believe in student debt forgiveness. You talk to any borrower paying eight or nine percent on your loan. There's no way you're ever going to get ahead. So I believe it's a PR disaster on both sides. And I don't believe either party really reflects the common person's way of looking at a policy solution for trillions of dollars of student debt, which we currently face. Man, let me tell you something, dear brother. <laughs> Ironically, you could, you could find my doctoral dissertation online. That's one of my recommendations, uh, is that <laughs> they have decided to package it as a partisan idea uh, rather than a collective negotiable idea. And because of that, it gets killed depending on what tank it comes from. So I appreciate your honesty on that. Always, dear brother, thank you for your insight. Always. Great to be here. Absolutely. All right. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.